Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're here today. And uh, let me bring in the the, the group, uh, Stephen Rouse, down in, in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Drew. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. Jeff, Jeff Smeltzer, Aaron Exton. Good to see you, Jeff. Good afternoon. And Scott, Scott Smeltzer in Gettysburg. Had a, had a brain freeze there for a minute. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? I am doing all right. Good. And Jonathan Sadler from also Gettysburg. Good to see you today, Jonathan, our webcast engineer. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's good to see you guys today. In a moment, I'm going to turn it over to Scott, who is our program director. But before we do, I just want to remind everyone to use the uh, the question and answer icon button and pop up your window and text away any questions you want or click on the hand icon and give us a call. Let us know you want to talk audio, get, uh, use your audio to ask a question, give you a comment. And we do want you to Give us your questions and comments, and we'll bring them up and talk about them during the, the program. Um, if you're coming in watching us on the YouTube channel, be aware there's about a 10-second delay on the YouTube channel, but you have a place there to enter in your comments as well. So with all of that, let's get going on the program. Scott, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, let's start with a theoretical question. Let's suppose that Jesus came back, not the second coming when he comes in the air and it's the last day and he gathers all nations before him and judges them and the world is burned up, but just he came back for a visit. So Jesus, if he came back and he was going to spend a few months or a few years uh, here, say, in the United States, what might those weeks and months look like? Um, who, would, who would want to be meeting with him? Who would he be mating, make, uh, making meetings with and that type of thing? Um, and so people might think, who would be lining up to make all their appointments with Jesus? So let's be sure if we can get some of our viewers to chime in with thoughts about that. Yeah. What would, what would this, if you were Jesus, if you were going to be a secretary and you're, you're making the appointment for Jesus and you're getting all the requests to come in, um, you know, who would he be lunching with, having, uh, 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 you know, uh, business meetings with, discussions with, uh, who would it be? Anybody out there in the audience have an idea? Probably you would think that there would be people who would think um, some people of importance in some kind of sense. Oh, so I mean, just think of, you know, uh, the professional clergy all around the country. So various pastors, priests, bishops, TV evangelists, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and man, if you're a TV evangelist, if you could book Jesus, <laughs> yeah. your guests on your show mm -hmm. and tonight at eight o'clock we'll be talking to jesus you know and um uh so various denominational leaders and synods uh and and they might try to get him on the news once or twice i don't know yeah 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 uh and would people expect that their preacher would be really really excited to have jesus there well of course you would think 
Yeah. And if anybody at your church was going to be excited, it's going to be the preacher. I mean, if he gets a chance to have some one-on-one time with Jesus. So all these leaders are obviously going to be thrilled to see Jesus. And of course, people might expect, what's Jesus going to be saying to all these religious leaders who, while he's been gone, have been there um, doing something with the flock and you know, uh, so what might Jesus want to let all of them know? Uh, Scott, do I sense a tone in the way you're asking that question? <laughs> there might be. Notice I, <laughs> I said doing something with the flock. Because maybe they were feeding the flock. Maybe they were fleecing the flock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's really a, a good way to answer this question is to notice that history has a way of repeating itself. Did Jesus come for a visit before? He did. Yeah. Did he go to, like, the pagan part of the world where nobody knew the Hebrew scriptures, or did he kind of go to what at that time would have been the Bible Belt? Clearly the Bible Belt. Yeah. Yeah. And so, of course, all the religious leaders were so happy to see him and he... Not exactly. Yeah. So Jeff's going to uh, lead us in some thoughts here about not the whole ministry of Christ, because you can see it across there, but especially as we get to the last week. The last week of Jesus, what city does he come to? Well, he comes into Jerusalem. He comes riding in uh, on a donkey but being exalted by the people um, as the son of David, essentially recognized as the coming king, the coming Christ. And it's all the religious leaders out there welcoming him, right? No. I don't think no, so. No, 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 no. Not so much. Well, Not so much. As a matter of fact, since, since you mentioned this, uh, just shortly before this, John twelve nine, the common people, therefore, the Jews, learned that he was there in Bethany, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he'd raised from the dead. They were all excited about seeing Jesus and Lazarus. But the chief priests, the religious leaders, were taking counsel that they might put Lazarus to death because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and that kind of gave credibility to the teaching of Jesus about the resurrection. And the chief priests, many of them Sadducees, weren't fans of that idea. In fact, the, the main opponents of Jesus are going to be the religious leaders. Religious well, leaders. Let's, let's start this in a kind of roundtable discussion here and lead us through kind of the chronology of that last week of Christ. Let's learn from some lessons from it. You know, guys, you may disagree with me, but to me, Matthew's text is the one that uh, I use as the basis for understanding this chronology. A lot of people point to Luke's wording things in order. I don't think Luke means he's telling things in chronological order, but he's giving an orderly presentation of things. But Matthew's text helps us to, with with the other Gospels, bringing the information in from them, helps us to look at that last week. I would say it was on what we would call Sunday of the week that Jesus was crucified when he rode into Jerusalem. You guys would probably agree with that. Yeah, but the way you just worded that, it said it sounded like you said he was crucified on Sunday. No, that's, no. But he came into town. Crucified later on in that week, but on what we would call Sunday of that week, he rides into town. And what's the first thing that he does when he gets into Jerusalem? He goes and cleans house at the temple. 
And you might think the religious leaders would very, be very appreciative of that. Finally, we've got somebody in here cleaning house, getting rid of those who are making merchandise of, this, uh, uh, of the people's uh, service. Pe- they've got people in there uh, selling doves for sacrifices and money changers all. I, I'm not against capitalism, but that's not what the worship of God is about. And that's what they were making the house of God about. So Jesus runs them out. But the religious leaders weren't excited about that, were they? Oh, they were excited, no. all right, but in the opposite direction. All right, but what a somebody things. Yeah, the next Somebody day. correct me if I'm wrong. Go ahead, Scott. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Was it the sons of Zadok that were connected to the Sadducees that actually ran the the temple booths where they made these obscene prophets? I don't know anything about that, the connection between Zadok and and this. Uh, I'm quite confident that the Sadducees, who controlled the high priest, the high priest was of that party, and they controlled the temple and the chief priest. You wouldn't have had a booth in there making tons of money without their permission and without them, I think, also making money on it. Yeah, that you know, you've you've sold antiques. You've had booths set up in markets where you could sell antiques, and they didn't give you that space just uh, right free. You had to yeah, pay for yeah. that. And in a lot of places, there's commission. And uh, just just a side note: Josephus tells about some later reforms because the prices were so high. It, it was kind of like if you're in the middle of Disney World and you're trying to get a hot dog and a coke. You know, it's uh, except worse. Josephus can exaggerate, but he says after reforms were later put in place, it brought the price of like a turtle dove down from a ratio of 101. Well, since you make that observation, let's just jump ahead just here a little bit. Think about the religious world today. Would you say that, you know, we talk about big oil and we can talk about uh, big auto and big whatever. Would you say there's such a thing as big religion? Would you say there's such a thing as religion that is commercialized today? Oh, certainly. Yeah. You see denominations that have investments and that own property and um, that, that, well, I just think about all the, the businesses that are in business to support the business of big religion. You think about how many, how many times you get a phone call or a mailing from somebody who's going to try to make some money off the church with which you work because they're going to uh, teach you how to do fundraising or they're going to sell you their fundraising project uh, product. And, and there are a lot of churches, denominations that, that need to take in lots of money and they've got to come up with commercial ways to, to raise funds. And there are people who can make money helping them do that. That's kind of the direction religion's gone. Yeah. And you think about the big mega churches with a campus here and a campus there and a campus, some other place. And, all the things that they have in their facilities. Say, Jeff, would you say that that's uh, similar to the tables then that that were in the temple when Jesus? I would. And the other similarity I would say was what, what is this? I would see is this, what, what if Jesus came today and he came in and started overturning all those campus facility, all the different campuses of mega church, or he started um, condemning some of the, commercialized aspects of religion today. Who would be upset about that? The religious leaders. And who was upset about it when he went into the temple? Stephen, you mentioned that the religious leaders weren't happy about it. 
comes comes to the next day, which we would call Monday, and I'm here in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 23, and it says, when he was come into the temple, this is the day after he's cleansed it, uh, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching, and they had a question. What was the question? By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Who, who do you think you are coming in here and, and disrupting what we've got going on in the temple? By what authority do you do this? And they may have asked the question a little bit cautiously. What, what gives you the right to do this? His answer was interesting. What was his answer? I'll ask you a question. As the classic Jesus, where he answers the question with a question. And of course, the, is the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And it's not an unrelated question. It's not like he just says, well, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. If you'll answer mine, I'll answer yours. His question, the answer to his question would be the answer to their question. When he says the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Well, if they say from heaven, then they knew his response would be, why did you not believe John? With reference to Jesus, John said, uh, pointed to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if you say his baptism was from heaven, you know the authority by which I'm doing this. And if you, it, but the, the leaders, the religious leaders had a problem because they couldn't go the other direction. The other direction was to say, well, John's baptism was just from men. And the problem with that was what? The people would be very upset with that because they knew the people looked at John as a prophet. And, and the religious leaders need the people they don't need to upset the people. That's their constituency. So they're kind of in the, in the same boat as religious leaders today who don't want to upset the people because the people are their constituency, but they're really not ready to respond to the authority of heaven and, and acknowledge it. So like politicians, they make a very noncommittal answer. And so what was their answer? We don't know. Oh. <laughs> We don't know. And so Jesus said, well, I'm not going to answer your question either, but I will tell you about a man who had two sons. So how did that go? He tells the parable about the man who had two sons. One says, I'll I'll go work for you. Uh, Or the first one actually says, I won't go. And then he ends up going. The second son says, I will go. And then he ends up not going. Which of the two did the will of his father? They say, yeah, the first guy did, because even though he said he wouldn't, he ended up going. But this is about the religious leaders, because the religious leaders are the ones who say, we do God's will, but didn't. And who did Jesus say would go into the kingdom before the religious leaders? Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. That's Matthew 21, verse 31. And then why? Verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So the prostitutes and the tax collectors who were disobedient to the word of God in many cases responded and repented and did the right thing. Right. Religious leaders who were saying they were doing the right thing didn't. Right. Does, that, is, does that correspond to religious leaders today? Yes. And everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So then, go ahead, Scott. And if they had not already been planning on killing him, which they were, <laughs> <laughs> this is, 
they want him dead. Jesus hadn't read Dale Carnegie's How to Win, Win Friends and Influence People here. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't trying to, and this is important, and it's a serious point, he was not trying to endear himself to the religious leaders of his day because the religious leaders of his day were not where the truth lay, that they did not have the way of God. And he was not there to applaud them and tell everyone what faithful, faithful, you know, scribes and Pharisees and chief priests they had been. Then he tells a series of parables. And again, these parables are designed to indict the religious leaders of his day. Um, he tells the parable about the man who had a vineyard. He planted it. He, uh, he built a hedge around it. He built a wine press in it. He built a tower. And he had some men he hired to take care of it. And then he went away. And when the time of harvest came, he sends to them messengers to receive the rewards. And what did they do with the messengers? Beat some of them. Killed others of them. Yep. So he sends more, and they treated them just as badly. So finally he says, I will send my son. Surely they'll reverence my son, and they didn't. They said, let's kill him, and then the, the, inherit, the vineyard will be ours. Well, obviously the parallel is God sending various prophets and messengers to the people of Israel. But there were people who were already interested in possessing this for themselves, the religious leaders. And then when God sends his son, they kill him, which is what these religious leaders to whom Jesus is speaking are about to do. And so Jesus asks the question, because they have, apparently they haven't quite picked up on who he's talking about yet. So he asks the question, when therefore the Lord of the vineyard shall come. What verse what, are you in? What verse are you Matthew in? Matthew 21, verse 40. When therefore the Lord of the vineyard shall come, after they've killed the servants and beat the servants and killed the son, when the Lord of the vineyard shall come, what will he do to those husbandmen, the guys who were here hired to take care of it? And, and the, the, the religious leader's response is right. He said, he'll miserably destroy those miserable men and will let out the vineyard to other husbandmen who shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Then Jesus goes ahead and makes it clear they're the guilty parties. I like verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so then the next verse, verse 46 says, they sought to lay hold on him, but they feared the multitudes because they took him as a prophet. So, Religious leaders today, do you suppose Jesus would come and he would be chumming around with the religious leaders today? He would be saying things that would make the religious leaders today very uneasy. And if he were getting a following amongst the people, uh, the religious leaders today would be finding a way to discredit him, which is what we see in chapter 22. How do they try to discredit Jesus? First thing is they try to trap him they they're thinking of an earthly kingdom they think probably jesus is is along the same line and they send some of their disciples along with some men loyal to herod who is loyal to rome uh -huh. 
and they say, oh, teach, we, oh, you're not afraid to tell it like it is. You're not afraid of anybody. Should we be paying taxes to Caesar or not? And of course, their hope is they'll butter Jesus up. And if he'd been a person like them, he might have said what people wanted to hear. But they're hoping he'll say no. And then, of course, then the Romans will take the problem off their hands. Yeah, they, they think they have him on the horns of a dilemma here. Because if he says, no, you don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he's in trouble with the Romans. And as you say, they've got the representatives of, the, of Herod right there. Uh, if he says, yes, you pay taxes to Caesar, he, he's going, in their mind, they're thinking he'll lose his influence with the common people, some of whom are going to resent their, the oppression of the Romans and the fact that they're having to pay taxes to this foreign power. So Jesus handled the question deftly. What did he do? He gave them a coin. Called for a coin and said, whose picture's on it? And they said, well, Caesar's. So he said, well, give to Caesar what Caesar's and give to God's what's God's. And, and, they couldn't get a hold of that. They didn't have anything to get a hold of there. To... So then, now that was the Pharisees, some of the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now it's the Sadducees. And we'll come back in a minute and talk about who the Pharisees were and who the Sadducees were. Well, we need to talk about who the Sadducees were just a little bit. Now, they controlled most of the upper offices of the priesthood at this time, and yet they did not believe, Luke tells us, in angel, spirit, or uh, resurrection. In other words, they didn't believe in what you can't see. They, they were materialists. They were rationalists, you could say. Josephus tells us the same things about them. Do we have religious leaders today like that? Yep. Yeah, I think many people are surprised, are not aware that their pastor may not believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. Their pastor may not believe Jesus literally fed 5,000 people with um, five loaves and two fish. They may not believe Jesus was literally born of a virgin. Some of the, some of the pastors of people, maybe people who are listening to this webcast, um, so some of you guys have talked with some of these people. What are some of the things some of these guys say about the miracles, the resurrection, the, those kinds of things? We, we've got a seminary here in town, and I'll, I'll briefly relate a couple of instances. One time, one of the fellows at the seminary wanted to interview me as part of a project. And so I asked him, I said, do your professors there at the seminary, you know, believe on the resurrection of the dead? He said, no, they don't say whether he did or didn't. They're kind of agnostic about it. Um, and one day I was doing some study there, and the fellow who used to be the president or the dean, fellow with a heavy German accent, he thought I was one of the students, and he started ripping into me. And uh, he said, my wife, my wife has more Bible in her little finger than you fellas do. And he says, what they're doing to my church, you know, with the stance on homosexuality and everything else. And he was quite upset because it's, it's a very, very theologically liberal leftist yeah. type thing. So there's your Sadducees. And so they come to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and, and, and Matthew makes the point. These are they that say there is no resurrection. So that's relevant. And they tell this story to Jesus about one of them. Uh, they, there was a man among them who was married and, and he died and had no children. And of course, under the system, then it would be the responsibility of the brother to, to take the woman and have children that could be heirs of the deceased. Well, that guy died, and so the next brother took him. And seven brothers in a row had this wife, and she died then finally after they'd all died. And so they said, well, in the resurrection now, whose wife is she going to be? 
in their mind, if you believe in a resurrection from the dead, you're going to have a confusing mess up there because you're going to have one woman with seven husbands. So obviously it would be silly to believe in the resurrection. And Jesus' response is, you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. That's verse 29. Then he goes on and he deals with it. But that statement to the religious leaders, you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. These are religious leaders. They didn't know the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. And that, that fits some of the religious leaders today who don't believe in anything other than what they can see materially, physically. They don't believe the Bible is actually literally inspired by God. They don't believe it's the word of God. They believe it's just the word of man. And therefore we don't have to follow it. We don't have to obey it. We can, we can disagree with it. We can dismiss it as the way they thought 2000 years ago. And we can have homosexual marriages, even though the Bible condemns such things, because that was just those ideas back then. They neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Say, hey, Jeff, Jeff, wait a minute. You're, if, if people really go that far, you're going to have a lot of confusing a church. A, wait a minute. There are a lot of denominations out there, aren't there? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point. Once we dismiss the idea that God has spoken to man, God's revealed himself to man, that the Bible is the word of God, then you're going to have all different kinds of ideas about what our doctrine and what our beliefs should be. So you end up with all these denominations. All right, so, so you've got those attempts to discredit Jesus. And then we come to chapter 23, and Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites. And he does so in no uncertain terms. What's a scribe? Uh, someone who would have been one of the copyists of the word of God and also one who studied it kind of like a lawyer um, in today's terms. Luke actually, in Luke, they're referred to as lawyers. So you have these guys who are experts in the law because they spend their time copying it. For example, when, when the wise men came, having seen the star in the east, and they come because they understand this is a sign the Messiah is here. And they come to Jerusalem, and Herod, the king, hears about it. He needs to consult some experts to find out, well, where would we find the Messiah? Who did he consult with? The scribes. The scribes and the, I want to say the uh, chief priests. Um, Matthew chapter 1 and verse uh, 4, gathering all the chief priests and scribes. And did they know? Did they know? Yeah. yeah, they quote from Micah 5. They knew what Scripture said about whether Christ had come. So they're scholars, you could say. So you start looking at the religious groups we're seeing. We have scribes who are scholars. We have the Sadducees who are religious leaders, but they don't believe in anything spiritual. They don't believe um, in things they can't see. You have the Pharisees. What were they known for? Their strict adherence to the law and even them building a hedge around the law. And that hedge consisted of their own rules that they made up about how to follow God's rules. And they became more interested in their rules than God's rules. Uh, and the phrase that we sometimes see, the Pharisees were the ones that criticized Jesus' disciples because they did not follow what? The traditions. Traditions of the elders. Traditions of the elders. Yeah. And so go ahead, Scott. And they were also quite concerned with their appearance before other people. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So self-righteous. So you have 
self-righteous tradition followers who are putting more emphasis on their religious tradition than on the word of God. Does that sound like any religious leaders today? And then you had the materialists, the Sadducees who were holding the highest offices in the religious world at the time, but didn't believe. Does that sound like any religious leaders today? Yep. And then you had scholars. And do we have people today who are held up as scholars and whatever they say, that's what we're going to believe. Yep. These are the religious leaders that we're talking about. And amongst these religious leaders, Jesus was, he was, they were not fans of his and he was not a fan of theirs. And so in Matthew chapter 23, time after time, he, he indicts the Pharisees and the scribes in particular as hypocrites as you go through that chapter. So at this point, we just, yeah, go ahead. I was like, Jeff, you're painting a very uh, revolutionary uh, radical picture here. Well, it gets more radical in the next chapter, their big center of religion, which was the temple. Of course, the temple had its origin where? In the Old Testament. I mean, it was built for the worship of the Lord by Solomon originally. Yeah, and who who told who who gave the instructions for it? God did. Yeah, and so that was from God, and yet they had turned it into something else. In the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, you see God walking away from the first temple, the one Solomon built. God leaves it. He abandons it because they polluted it so. Now we've got the second temple built, and um, Jesus says in Matthew, the 24th chapter, it's going to be destroyed. What was that saying that his gospel was going to be destroyed? Was that saying his church was going to be destroyed? The point is, did that temple represent, did that temple at this time in the religious context of the first century, did that temple represent the things of God? The layout of the temple, yeah, the furnishings of the temple, the things that had come from God, they had been designed by God to point to certain things. But the, 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 the point of the temple had the uh, purpose of the temple had, it had served its purpose. And now it just stood for the religion that we're seeing led by these men who don't believe, who are self-righteous, who are more concerned in their own traditions than in the word of God. Um, It didn't stand for the things of God. And Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. And it was destroyed within 40 years of this conversation. Thoughts up to that point. Just the description of Jesus in Matthew 23 about the scribes and Pharisees. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, on the surface, it's made to appear beautiful, but it was absolutely corrupt and rotten on the inside. You know, since you took us back to Matthew 23, let's read this section in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5 and following and see if this sounds like religious leaders today. All their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries. You could tell phylacteries were little boxes that contained scripture that Jews would wear on their foreheads or their wrists. And these guys would make them very large so they'd be obvious, conspicuous. I'm a religious guy. Are there people today who adorn themselves with things to say, I'm a religious guy? Uh, They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments so they have special clothing that signifies them as religious leaders. They love the chief place at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and the salutations in the marketplaces and to be called of men, rabbi. 
Do we have religious? So here comes a fellow dressed in black with a little white thing right here mm-hmm. that means nothing fashion-wise at all except for I'm a religious leader. Mm-hmm. He pulls up to the place of worship to the spot parked clergy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody else can put it park there. Pastor's parking spot. Yeah. He goes in and people don't call him Joe or Bob. They call him, oh, hello, Reverend. Yeah, or hi, Pastor. Yes, yes. Or, hello, Father. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, you, you look at this and, and you see Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders of his day. Scott, you asked at the outset of the webcast, if Jesus came today, what kind of interaction would he be having with the religious leaders similar to this one? And, yep. and, and the religious leaders today would no more appreciate what he had to say in many cases than the religious leaders of the first century. Let's, let's go through a couple of scenarios here. So, so you play the role of Jesus. I'll play the role of the clergy coming up. Oh, Jesus. Hello. Hello. I'm Reverend so-and-so. Who is Reverend but one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you not read? Reverend appears in the King James Bible one time. It's it back in Psalm, is it Psalm 111, verse 9? And yeah. it's holy and reverend is his name, God's name. Now, modern translations have a different word there. It means the same thing. What is like, for instance, the New American Standard have? Holy and awesome? Yes, awesome is his name. Now, what, <laughs> if, if I introduce myself, I'm John Steve, and I say, I'm awesome. Stop. <laughs> People would laugh, inappropriately so. They should laugh when somebody says, I'm Reverend. It's ridiculous. I'm awesome, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, somebody else comes up and says, oh, Jesus, so happy to meet you. I'm Father so-and-so. And Jesus answers it right here from Matthew 23. Uh, call no man Father. Yeah. Hmm. Now, to be, to be sure here, um, the, another, uh, another term that is used in the words that are translated revere or reverend uh, is the idea of fear, fear, respectful fear. Um, wives are told to, to um, in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, to revere their husbands, um, not to be terrorized by their husbands, but to have a respectful uh, attitude toward their husbands. But a man is not due reverence, either as God is to be revered or just as a husband is to be revered, merely by virtue of the fact that uh, he wears a special robe with a little white collar. Um, Religious leaders, uh, religious leaders, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 10, neither be called masters, for one is your master, even Christ, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled, and whosoever shall humble himself shall be exalted. A religious leader, uh, there are such things as religious leaders, and they lead by serving God and serving others as they serve God. But I think sometimes it's possible for a man to serve or make a great show of serving in such a way that look at me, I am serving. (laughs) And he wears the robes and all the things to call attention to himself. All right. Well, then we come to Matthew chapter 25 
And at the end of chapter 24, and then in Matthew 25, there's several things that Jesus has to say about being ready. Uh, he talks about the time when the flood came and people weren't ready. And he talks about the parable of the virgins and some of them weren't ready. And he talks about those servants who were given talents and they needed to be ready when their Lord came back doing the will of the Lord. And he talks about the faithful servant, faithful and wise servant who is doing the bidding of, the, of his Lord uh, when his Lord comes back, finds him doing that. These are the things that Jesus was about in the last week. And, and we've already mentioned the leaders of the Jews weren't happy with it. We get to Matthew 26, and there's, I think, what is a flashback. Matthew chapter 26, verse 6 says, When Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, Mark tells us that all during this last week, Jesus has been in, the, in Jerusalem teaching in the temple and then going out in the evening and spending the night in Bethany. Um, but John tells us this particular incident we're about to read took place six days before the Passover, six days before the Passover at which, at which Jesus identified Judas as the one to betray him, and Judas goes out and does betray him, and Jesus is crucified the next day. So six days before that would put this event in the week before Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem. And uh, it tells us in Matthew 26, 6, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster cruise of exceeding precious ointment. She poured it upon his head as he sat at meat. It goes on to tell us how the disciples complained about that. John tells us Judas especially was complaining because Judas knew that if the ointment had been sold and the money put into the bag, he could have helped himself to it because Judas was a thief, and that's what he did. He helped himself to the money in the bag. Jesus responds to this complaining, saying, the poor you have always with you. You can help them whenever you have opportunity, but me you don't have always with me. And this woman, what she has done is to prepare me for my burial. And as a matter of fact, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, she's going to be spoken of. And, and here now, 2,000 years later, we're making mention of her. Well, if you were Judas and you were sitting there complaining because in your heart, you knew, you knew what your motive was. I want to get my hands on that money. And you said something that was intended to sound righteous. This could have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus makes your attempt to sound righteous look foolish because by comparison, better you do something for Jesus, the Son of God, right now before he departs than the poor whom you always have, you might feel a little chagrin. You might feel a little foolish. And it's at that point that both Mark and Matthew tell us that um, Judas goes out and makes his deal with the religious leaders. If this is, as I think it is, just at the end of the previous week, they have been looking for an opportunity and they know when, when Judas now comes to them, okay, that's what he says he's going to deliver Jesus. We can pay him. They're still trying to figure it out. And then we get to the Thursday night when Jesus eats the Last Supper and Jesus identifies Judas as the one who's going to betray him. And Judas goes to the religious leaders and they send a mob to arrest Jesus. Well, that kind of brings the whole story to a conclusion. What was Jesus' relationship with the religious leaders of his day? It was such that they couldn't tolerate him, and they were going to have him put to death, looking for an opportunity, and Judas was the one who would 
provide them that opportunity. It's amazing that some of those Jewish leaders would go on to follow Jesus, most notably one of the Pharisees by the name of Saul from Tarsus. But it is striking as you get near the end of Jesus' life to see how frequently and how forcefully he calls out their wrongdoing and just says that you've missed the whole point and you're leading people astray. And to summarize the things that, that at least that I think I see in this, commercialism, what was going on in the temple, and we see that in the religious world today. Yeah. Unbelief in yeah. the Sadducees and the unbelief of religious leaders today. Hung up on our own traditions, uh, the Pharisees. And you see today people who, well, the Catholic Church will just tell you that their own traditions are as important to them as the Bible, and in fact, really take precedence over the Bible. And and so you see the same thing, scholarship. And I, 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 you all know that we all we all spend time studying the Bible. Some of us get involved in the original languages. Some of us get involved in going back and looking at archaeological findings. And some of those things are very helpful. But when people think of religious scholarship this way, here's here's my Bible. Uh, I'm not going to spend time reading the Bible, but here's this scholar over here, and he tells me that actually, and then the actually leads to a conclusion that says, I don't have to believe what the Bible said. Right. Well, so you have that going on in the religious world today, and that's that's what a lot of so-called Christendom is, either scholarship taking you away from the Word of God, man's traditions taking you away from the Word of God, materialistic concepts that can't believe the Word of God, and commercialism that makes religion in, into some kind of money-making opportunity, and then you say, I wonder why people say they don't, they're not into religion. Because for many people, the word religion is about those things yeah, rather than what's from God. Yeah, that's a really good point. And how many people are kept from really investigating the truth of the scriptures because of hypocrites. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's the bottom line that Jesus is calling these people. They're scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Mm -hmm. And from Matthew 23, empty, shallow pretentiousness. Mm -hmm. This is very alive and well among a lot of mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course the challenge for us is, well, we've got to, we've got to rise above that. We've got to do our very best to be genuine, authentic scripture focused Christians who are actually following Jesus, who are actually obeying him who are upholding his word and being careful to hold fast to it in a culture that's sliding away from it and then give people an opportunity to hear something different, um, to get out and to say, hey, the, the religious establishment is not right, so, and there's something better. Yeah, and, and, and all, I'm sorry, go ahead, Stephen. No, I was going to say on what Stephen was saying, Jesus even said that uh, to the people that their righteousness is going to have to exceed the righteousness of those religious leaders. Yeah, and that's where I want to go to his last final comment here. Jesus wasn't just about saying what was wrong with the religious leaders of his day. I set this up, you know, the last week, what was important. Actually, it wasn't last week. It was last week before he's crucified, but then after he's crucified and raised, he spends 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. And you think of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon about kingdom living, and that's the passage you're referring to there, Drew, what you just mentioned. And you go through the Sermon on the Mount, 
And there's a lot to be learned about how we should live, how we should do unto others as, as we would have them do unto us, about being peacemakers in the Beatitudes, about those who are poor in spirit. You mentioned righteousness being beyond that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the Pharisees and the scribes, which way it says it there. And in the following verses, it talks about those who are just superficially, well, I don't kill anybody, but inwardly may have the same heart. Well, I don't commit adultery, but inwardly may be lusting, looking for lust. Jesus has a lot to say about how we should live. So my point is here to say Jesus wasn't just the religious leaders are evil. He was also saying, here's how you need to live. Here's the kind of person you need to be. Let's close. We're almost out of time with Jesus' word from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Matthew, and so if somebody has it there handy, Matthew 7, 21, right down through when many will say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do this or do that? Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let me, uh, let me, let me offer out an invitation to everyone that is listening to the live broadcast or listening to the, to the web, uh, the, the podcast that maybe you're listening later on in the week, the recording that. If you're interested in uh, learning the Bible without creed books, without other preconceived theologies, um, we invite you come to the go to the website BibleQuest.tv, fill out the form, and let us know you'd be interested in learning nothing but the Bible. Any one of the men here would, would glad gladly have a, a Bible study with you. So I just wanted to throw that out. Um, I thought it was a good time to make that invitation. Okay, I think that about wraps it up. We're out of time. Thank you all.